I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today I have a special guest, freelance writer and photographer, Joshua Collins. Joshua was born in Houston, spent some time up in New York, and now he lives in Bogota, Colombia, covering South America and all the conflicts that are going on in that region. I thought it would be really interesting to have Joshua come on, discuss some of his articles, and get into American interventionism in Colombia. So, hope y'all enjoy this. All right, we got Joshua Collins on the line. Hey, Joshua. Hello. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's a blast. I'm sorry about the beeping that you hear in the background. That's my uh, that's my truck. It's um, amazing that you do this podcast from the road. That's truly amazing. Well, I, love I, it. I appreciate it. Te- modern technology makes it possible. So, right. I can't take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> you put but, in all the effort. I put in as much as I can. Right. Um, so I want I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself. I know you're writing for Reason and some other other ma- uh, other magazines and uh, journalists uh, publications is the word that I'm trying to get out of my mouth. So <laughs> if we could uh, just introduce yourself to the audience and so they know who you are and we can start yeah. looking for your work more more frequently. Um, I'm Joshua Collins. I'm a freelance journalist and photographer based in Colombia. I cover Latin America. Usually I work for Vice, um, Al Jazeera, and a Swiss company called The New Humanitarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, do a lot of stories on on violence in Colombia, as well as immigration and drug stories. And, but I have written a couple articles for Reason. Uh, not a whole lot. I think like three or four in the course of three years. Yeah. But uh, when they let me complain about the Colombian state, I'm, I'm happy for any opportunity to complain about the Colombian state. So if they're interested in hearing the story, I love telling it. Well, you you have some interesting stories. How did you end up in Colombia? Am, am I mistaken? You were you're from New York originally. Is that correct? I was born in Texas, but lived in New York for about fifteen years, maybe a little more. Oh, and, okay. yeah. And I came to Colombia kind of on a lark a little over three years ago. I was originally planning to keep traveling south within the continent uh, and eventually open up um, a business or something. But I kind of just sort of fell in love with Colombia. I never left and turned to journalism because I ended up on the Venezuelan border in 2018 when that was, there wasn't a lot of attention on English press mm-hmm. um, in, on, on the Venezuelan border during that time. Although in 2019, of course, that changed. Yeah. And uh, so I was kind of the only English speaking journalist in a little city called Cucuta. I lived about a quarter of a mile from the Venezuelan border. And that's kind of how I got started in journalism. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so one of the one of the articles I read by you, which I thought was like extremely interesting, was uh, about the the regulatory capture of multinational corporations on the marijuana farms in um, in Colombia. Could you could you expand on that and let us know what's happening there? Yeah. So in in 2016, uh, Colombia started considering legislation to legalize cannabis production. And at the time, a lot of small farmers who've been doing it for years here were really excited, especially because a lot of them live in conflict zones. Um, your listeners are probably aware, but Columbia just emerged from a 50-year civil war in 2017. Yeah. Um, but there are still great swaths of the country which the conflict never really ended. And so this, this on paper, it sounded great. They were going to um, legalize uh, cannabis production and uh, including for export, which is super interesting. And it was pitched as a way to kind of aid the peace process as well as stimulate economic action for a lot of these farmers who live in areas where there's no economy. Uh, but that's not really what happened. In 2000, uh, beginning of 2019, they started issuing licenses, but the process to get um, certified is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. and. By the time the final law passed, you effectively need to have a pharmaceutical grade laboratory to produce concentrates in order to get these licenses. So what happened is the field became dominated by um, Canadian and uh, American United States companies. And so as of, let me check this, I have it written down here. As of the end of 2019, 
there were 168 licenses and over a hundred of those were to foreign international companies. Mm -hmm. So these big multinationals that had already made a, you know, a killing in California or Colorado or various parts of Canada effectively came down and have been swooping up all of these, these, these permits to build these big industrial grow houses. And it's left a lot of um, indigenous and uh, kind of, vulnerable communities, especially in conflict zones, who've been growing marijuana for decades uh, illegally. I mean, I say illegally because like, I don't, it's, it, the, the government, the Colombian government considers what they're doing a crime, but it doesn't consider what a company like Avicana, which is a, a Canadian uh, Colombian partnership here in Colombia, a crime. And it's, 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 it's unfortunate because it was pitched as this way to try and start an agricultural green revolution, which it could be. I mean, that has happened for certainly Colorado and the States, you know? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's not the way that it's, it's really turned out. It seems to be bogged down in an incredible amount of regulation, which basically huge companies are able to buy their way past. Right. Right. And a lot of times it's the huge multinational corporations that are advocating for the regulation to shut out the small businesses, the uh, the the from competition, from competing with them. Well, that is an interesting. That's a really interesting part of how this legislation evolved, because uh, without going too much into the Colombian uh, history here and problems with internationals, um, a lot of people who are proponents of the law we're pitching it as we have to write this raw really carefully because uh, the idea originally was to try and take people who were in the black market and put them in a legitimate market. Right. But what happened is the, the law was basically taken over by um, lawmakers who are very sympathetic with foreign investments. And you won't find it written anywhere that these laws were written to, pur to purposely exclude farmers, but there's no way that the lawmakers could not realize that would be the result. Yeah, well, I mean, we 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 see it all over the place. This isn't the first time it's happened. You know, you had uh, what was it, international fruit? You know, back in the day. I mean, yeah. th this has been going on for decades upon decades, and we even had it here. I don't know. I can't remember. You might you might have a better idea of what I'm talking about once I get it out of my mouth. Um, I think it was in Utah in 2016. They put up a referendum to legalize marijuana. And, but within the referendum, there was a clause within there that it 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 basically shut off um, independent farmers from participating in the growth of marijuana. And the referendum failed um, really? because because the population was like, no, we we're not we're not trying to um, give more leverage to corporations. I think it was Utah I could be completely mistaken on where that took place. But I, I do remember hearing about it. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. People are starting to wake up. But this yeah. is a... This I'm not is, familiar with the case, but I'm glad that people realize that that, that, that law wasn't going to work for their community. That's fantastic. Right. Well, and this, is a, this has been a huge blind spot among Americans for a long time. And mm -hmm. it's the, the actions of the multinational corporations in, in creating these regulations, the licensure laws. Um, I, I, was, I was listening to a lady the other day on the Tom Woods show, who is an attorney who fights these types of laws. And I mean, there's even some states where you have to get permission from your competitors or who your would-be competitors to open a business. And it's like a certificate of need. And it's really? like you, your competitors are never going to sign off on this. You know, they yeah, don't right. want the competition. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, the, the regulatory state is as much as it's sold for the benefit of the average person, it is very harmful to the entrepreneur, the independent farmer, the small businesses that uh, it, it swears to be protecting. And uh, it's great that you're doing work down there. Have, have we seen a, a surge of, of independent farmers, small businesses losing their property due to uh, these laws? Okay, so the way it works, another hurdle for these communities that have been um, cultivating marijuana informally for decades is that anyone who has any kind of charge for having cultivated marijuana in the past is not, uh, is not eligible for these licenses. So they've basically disenfranchised huge communities, a, a huge labor force that has been doing this for years and already knows how to do it, right? right. And it, 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 it seems completely intentional. Mm. Um, and furthermore, you can't be producing 
while you're applying for, even if you were a producer that was never charged, say that you're from a family that's been doing it for three generations, right. you have to shut down your farm while you undergo the, the application process, which can take up to a year. So that's an even, that's another hurdle for people that are, are, are small farmers trying to get into this business. But one thing that has happened that has been kind of interesting is there have been a few co-ops that have been forming. So like 30, 40 families that have been growing forever will get together and sort of pool their resources in the hopes that they can get in, build the infrastructure to, to pass um, the regulations to obtain the licenses. Now there's been a few instances of that, but that's more of an anomaly, right? That's not, the, the statistics of who has the license doesn't really reflect that very much. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, and in some ways that may be the only way that they're able to compete in any, any way, shape or form. Um, yeah. Un unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and you, you know, it, it's, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's like Monsanto here in the U S I don't know where they operate otherwise, but you know, the, the way that they, they get the capture on seeds and, you know, it's like this, this is natural. This is a natural product. And if somebody has, has gone through the time and the family has, has, has been participating in this market for so long, they have the knowledge and the wherewithal to, to do this. What, what gives the corporations the right to come in and, and capture these, these markets and really what it boils down to is the lobbying of the government and the paying off of government officials in order to uh, create this arbitrary barrier for the small, small uh, independent farmers. Yeah, well, absolutely. I agree. Um, Colombia is an interesting country with, with, in regards to that idea. Uh, so there's been a huge, as you kind of hinted at earlier, um, a huge history of foreign exploitation, uh, particularly of resources, um, mm -hmm. mining, petroleum in the past here in Colombia. And it's, it's an interesting state because it, it's almost always had a, a very conservative government, but they have very neoliberal policies in that respect. Their, their laws are very favorable towards these, these big international conglomerates and always have been. And speaking of Monsanto, that's a nice segue into uh, another topic that is really important here since we're talking about drugs in Colombia. Okay. Uh, this year, uh, the Colombian government decided uh, after halting the program in 2014 to start aerial spray of coca fields with glyphosate, which is the main uh, herbicide in Roundup mm. made by Monsanto. Yeah. And, and that just went into effect this year. And that's been part of a decades long drug war that's been going on here since the 70s that was has been not only encouraged, but mandated by the United States. Each year that the they do benchmarks as part of their, their international war on drugs and all of their allies, if they don't hit these benchmarks, they lose all of this uh, you know, foreign aid as they call it. Um, but it's really just a way to force this, this, this war on drugs that's been going on in the States since the seventies into a global war on drugs where their allies are active partners in what's going on. Now, the problem with aerial spraying in a country like Colombia is Coca production doesn't take place like the way that you see cornfields in Kansas in the U.S., for example, like big industrial farms in stable conditions um, where, where glyphosate has been used relatively safely because it's easy to control those environments. I right. mean, coca, coca here is grown in conflict zones uh, amidst human populations. So when they do these these aerial sprays, it's like they're they're burning down people's crops. They're hitting uh, rivers that are nearby, so these chemicals end up in the water supply. They're burning down thousands of acres of forests, sometimes in protected environments. Like there's a lot of biodiversity here in Colombia. There's a lot of rainforests, um, paramore stuff like that. So it's not only a giant waste of money, and it's not only an attack literally on the civilians because from these farmers' perspectives, right? Picture yourself, you're a farmer in some remote area where there's no highway that comes to your house. There's no infrastructure, there's no light uh, as in electricity. And so you can grow oranges or coffee, but then you've got to figure out how to get that to market. And by the time you, you pay for transport, the crop is worth less than you can sell it for. But an armed group that comes to your house one day and they're like, look, you have to grow coca now. And you're like, uh, okay. I'd be like, but we'll pay you for it and we'll come pick it up. So 
the these farmers will you know take half their field devote it to coca and they're not part of these armed insurrections they're just people that live in the community and mm -hmm. it's a subsistence farming they don't make very much money I and mean, people come and buy these coca leaves uh, by the pound or coca paste if the farmer wants to make them into that and then they process it into cocaine so what the Colombian government has decided to do, though, is attack the lowest rungs of this production scheme and the people who are the least paid and literally their own citizens. And it's just been part of a, a global war that has absolutely devastated Colombia as currently the biggest cocaine producer in the world only because of the war on drugs. They didn't become the biggest coca producer until far after Nixon decided that the, the war on drugs was going to be a global endeavor. And it was a market response because right. if, if, if coca was not worth, I don't know how much it is, a, a kilo of coke is worth in, in the United States, or I just don't have that number on the top of my head. But if, let's say it's $4,000. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't worth $4,000, then no one here would be producing it. You understand what I'm saying? It's right. like the, the very attempts to criminalize this plant is what makes it so valuable and that leads to massive devastation in Colombia, because, I mean, you're, you're talking $150 billion annual cocaine sales in the United States alone, and a large percentage of that comes from Colombia. Now, what do you think these people do with that money? They don't use it to invest in their communities. They use it to buy politicians. They use it to buy guns. <laughs> and, and, and they use it to build these organizations that are completely unrepresentative of the populations they control and to fund the remnants of a civil war and all of this I, you can't blame the civil war completely on the united states but you can say that the war on drugs made it much 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 more violent and that violence continues today right okay so when it whenever it comes down to and this is one of the subjects i was really interested to talk to you about was the cocaine production in uh colombia because that's kind of what people really don't think of marijuana production in Colombia. That's just they don't really tie that together. They mm -hmm. they think a lot more about the cocaine production and the the cartel movement. Yeah, it gets a lot more in, um, attention. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it has a reputation of being much more violent, um, and and that's partially why it gets the attention that it does. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I think that's true. Is it the so? When, when you say that the, the war on drugs has contributed to the civil war and the conflict there, is it, is it like the cartels versus the government? How is this? How are the lines? Uh, yeah, drawn? okay, this is interesting. So the Colombian war is going to be really hard to sum up in a five minute little encapsule, but I'll try. So in the early 20th century, um, the remnants of Spanish colonialism meant that 300 families here in Colombia controlled 80% of the arable lands. Now, most of the population worked as um, land leasers for these families. They would pay for the rights to farm, right? right. But this, led, this led to a system where there was zero upwards mobility because the only option that the population had was to rent land from the rich guy and uh, try to grow enough crops to not only survive, but make a little bit of profit and hopefully grow over time. But that's not what happens uh, because the, the, the aristocracy controlled not just the land, but also the markets. They, they controlled exportation. They controlled, they controlled every aspect of the business, right? So there started to be peasant rebellions against these wealthy landowners. The wealthy landowners formed militias to put down these peasant rebellions. Mm -hmm. This, this is uh, all the way from like 1920 to 1960. Okay. And during this time is also when a lot of North American agricultural companies started arriving. What they would do is they would tell these landowners, look, we'll rent 6,000 acres of your land and we're gonna use it to grow, I don't know, coca, coca cacao or bananas or something. Mm -hmm. And they became kind of ensnared in this conflict by accident because at this point, it was kind of a low boil. The peasants started forming militias of their own to fight the militias hired by the, the wealthy landowners. The state slowly started to become involved because the wealthy landowners had such a huge say over what the government was doing. Then in the 1960s, a couple of radical Marxists from Europe, um, various groups of them, some from France, um, some from Spain, 
and they were they were they were, they were part of the Catholic liberation movement. It's a strain of Marxism that is very based in Catholicism and sees the gospel as being inherently Marxist. Okay. They formed three groups here: the FARC, um, the ELN, and the ELP. Those are all three. Uh, guerrilla movements that were founded on sort of Catholic Marxist ideas. And they declared war against the state and went to war against the state in the 60s. That civil war lasted up until 2017. During that time, it became a really convoluted, almost five-way civil war. By the 70s, all of those groups, except for the ELN, was involved in coca production as a way to finance their activities. Uh, ELN finally, and I believe it was in the early 90s, decided they were going to start cultivating cocaine too because they saw a few options. So what the Civil War consisted of was three Marxist guerrilla groups who weren't necessarily on the same side. Let's say they were loose allies. Sometimes they fought each other. Versus paramilitary groups, uh, private militias, very right-wing, um, formed to initially combat the guerrillas, but who became criminal organizations themselves very quickly. They started uh, selling cocaine and trading arms to finance their operations as they fought the guerrillas. Now the state fought in theory, both of those ideologies, both the paramilitary right-wing groups, which they call paracos here. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the slang term and the guerrillas. <sighs> but there's been a lot of evidence that the state was at least loosely allied with some of these, these paramilitary groups, the paraco groups. Okay. And the Paraco groups committed a series of extrajudicial um, executions that are called the false positives here. The government was, by the 80s, working with the U.S. And then Plan in Colombia came along a bit later. And so the U.S. was, they wanted to kill communists in Latin America. This is during the Cold War, right? Yeah. So you had the Colombian state with aid from U.S. both intelligence and direct aid. They provided helicopters, arms, training, and money to fight this war and kill commies. Um, and during that time, they were, they were publishing these reports, like much like during the Vietnam War in the States, where they, they, they were measuring their degree of success by how many commies they killed. So they'd release these reports, like we killed 6,000 in the last few months, right? Mm -hmm. But that created an incentive for them to have more bodies. So the false positives cases where these paramilitary groups would, would roll into these, these rural conflict zones where there's no law at all. And they would realize that dead peasants look exactly like dead gorillas and they would just massacre people. Um, later on, when Plan Columbia officially kicked off, this got in, tied implicitly into the war on drugs because a huge part of American efforts during that time was to try and curb Colombian cocaine production. Mm -hmm. Now, this would be like a little bit later um, during like the time of Pablo Escobar, right. and, which everybody knows his name, right? Mm -hmm. and, and later the rise of the Cali cartel. But what happened is as the war went on, um, the guerrillas, especially FARC, were weakened, but certainly not at a point where they were about to be militarily defeated. That created a vacuum in this cocaine business. Now, a lot of modern narco groups don't officially call themselves Paracos, but that's what their origins are, most of them. They're from these self-defense groups that were created by these communities that became death squads and that later became narcos. So what you have here is a narco industry that is dominated by, predominantly, by what the government calls the Bakrim. It's these criminal groups. But most of the Bakrim are Paracos, and most of them were allied with the government at one time. Right. And so the guerrillas do still control coca production, but not as much as the Bakrim do. So you have some of these same families that I was talking about in the beginning of this story, those 300 families still control 80% of the land. They have all the senators. If you look at a list of, of senators' last names in Colombia, and you look at a list of the, the biggest business owners, and you look at a list of who owns petroleum companies, You'll see the same 300 last names. Really? Yeah, and you'll see some of those last names in the backroom as well, which is what I find the most interesting. So the government has this incentive to please the U.S. by, by continuing to wage with, you know, what the U.S. views as a drug war, but they don't have an incentive to actually end this problem. It drives a huge share of the economy here, right? Yes. So, it, I mean, 
it seems to me that they sort of do enough to get U.S. approval while they let this continue sort of extra officially. Well, and okay, so this kind of brings me roundabout. So are the the paramilitary groups, the, the right wing groups that you were talking about um, that that are now growing coca? Are they are they the ones who were involved with the uh, supplying of the CIA with cocaine back in the 80s? I mean, a lot of that stuff has, has never been totally proven. Um, I, a lot of people ask me this question, did the CIA sell cocaine in Colombia? No, I think it's much better to describe the situation as the CIA. Oh, well, that's a, not what I'm asking, because okay, okay. that's not that's not the way I understand it happening. The way yeah, I yeah. understand the CIA works, because I'm thinking about like John Perkins book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. So yeah, the, great book. so so what, I, what I'm what I'm the way I've learned to break down the CIA's involvement in that industry is by utilizing their assets in such a way to funnel money to their interests. And I would so, say it's, it's, I can't prove it, but I would, I would stake every penny I have on the fact that at some point, because their interests were so closely aligned, the CIA worked directly with some of these paramilitary groups. Okay. I mean, right, right now, the ex-president here, Alvare Uribe, is under investigation for having deep, deep ties with some of these communities, right? So you're not going to catch... This is the cool thing about that the 90s part of the Colombian Civil War. It's like in 10 years, those all those actions will become public record. And I'm going to be fascinated to see exactly what the U.S. government was up to during that period. Right now, that's all classified information. So yeah, you have a lot of speculative stories um, in Colombian media. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel safe saying that there's little doubt in my mind the CIA at some point worked with those Paracos. Yeah, because exactly what you're describing about like the multinational corporations coming in, the way that it's affecting the, the, the small farmers, it sound, it, it's just so reminiscent of how mm -hmm. John Perkins described his role in South America and dealing with the governments of South America in order to uh, monopolize the resources and and ex uh, extract the resources from the uh, the people of the country in favor of multinational corporations that were tied in and basically had cr created this fascist conglomerate with the government. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what they they've done that all over South America, right? It's it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, anybody who's not read that book, I would highly suggest uh, checking that book out. Yeah, it's uh, a great one. So it's, it's very interesting the way he gets into these things. I think he has a second edition out about it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, I digress. Um, so, where uh, what what is the history of um, of the farmers? Um, in the marijuana industry, uh, you, you had said that a lot of this was in order to rid the country of the black market. So is this something, like you said, you've, they've been dealing with it, doing it for generations. And um, a lot of these, a lot of the cocaine production has been going on for, for generations. So is this something that the government is, is specifically working on? Uh, in order to to create more wealth for themselves, um, I know I know you were like you said something about they sold it as trying to help the farmers out, but it really seems like they're way more interested in helping themselves out, which seems like a running theme with all politicians. Yeah. Um, well, as I mentioned, the government is mostly still controlled by those moneyed families that go all the way back to colonial times. Right. So it's when I think it's just a fundamental difference in the way they look at economic growth here, right? So economic, the GDP is powered almost completely by three cities here. It's Bogota, uh, Medellin, and then split between um, Cali and Cartagena. And so these these rural zones that used to be controlled by guerrillas, they don't play a very big part in the national economy, which means they don't benefit these 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 families that run the country. 
um, these are like small operations that have been going on on the Pacific coast, especially in, in the North too, in Magdalena, um, that were controlled by either indigenous groups that were largely kind of ignored by the government mm-hmm. or um, alternate revenue for some of these armed groups. So, but when I say that they were controlled by the armed groups, I don't mean that the farmers are part of the armed groups. It's, it's more of a situation I described earlier where they're kind of forced to work with these, these actors, right? And right. yeah, so I think that the way they look at it is just that we want to increase GDP. That's all they care about. They don't care about increasing earnings for, for everyone across the board. If they can raise a few multinationals up, you know, $100 billion, that makes the GDP go up. It benefits them. And I mean, there is some effect in the urban centers, like when there's more money in the community that does help everyone. But their, their primary goal is to create revenue for the big companies and the international companies and to encourage foreign investments. I don't think it's necessarily an evil nefarious plan. It's just how they view governance. They, they, they think that it's best that you know, an educated elite kind of rules the country. Right. Well, yeah, it seems like most politicians think that way. Um, Yeah. But it also it also seems to me like they have this kind of view that because of America's stance in the world and um, the power of the United States government for uh, for as long as it has been the sole superpower, it's best to be on the same side as the United States government. Oh, I agree with that completely. Um, Colombia is is the U.S.'s closest ally in South America, without a doubt, militarily, politically, uh, in the war on drugs, all of the above. There's 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 no way to deny that, and that goes across administrations. That has nothing to do with political parties in the United States. Did I? I thought I read something, and I, it wasn't you. So maybe you know what what I'm looking at. I thought I read something a while back about the United States um, funding. The Colombian military was it? It wasn't. Was it Bolsonaro? They were trying to get the Colombian military to invade and overthrow the Bolsonaro regime. No, you're probably talking about Venezuela. It could be. It could be yeah. Venezuela. So, yeah. In in 2016, uh, the current administration decided they were going to go after Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Um, they felt that it had been ignored by the U.S. And I'm not going to get into all that because it's a really complex subject. But basically, at one point, the administration asked the Colombian government if they would be okay with a joint invasion of Venezuela. And this was before the crisis, when things really kicked off in 2019. This would be like the end of 2016. And the Colombian government was like, no, it's like definitely, absolutely not. And it was one of the the few times where the Colombian government very publicly rebuked um, U.S. foreign policy interests. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that whole thing. It it was it was a nightmare. I, I was I remember doing a podcast on it and um, just on how horrible the backing of uh, Guaido and the potential coup that was to overtake um, Venezuelan government was. I'm sorry about the noise. Are you fine? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really, it's a really complex subject. I have time reporting on. I'm sorry. Oh, Jesus. Uh, the greater good, northern Venezuelan people, but it's not exaggeration to say that Nicolas Maduro is a murderous despot who actively uh, uses death squads to kill political opponents. So that's why I'm saying it's a really complicated issue. For me, living on the border when all that was going on was a really strange time. I mean, over 5 million Venezuelans have fled that country. It's, it's the biggest um, non-conflict generated immigration across, across national borders in, in the world right now. Uh, Syria has a larger one, but obviously they're in, they're in the midst of a civil war. Um, conditions there are insane. Like in the entire Western part of the country, there's rarely light, uh, there's massive malnutrition, there's no medical system. It's, it's a completely collapsed state. I mean, we could, we could talk for three hours about how, how conflicted I am about anyone's resolutions to those problems. But yeah, it's true that, that the US had some very shady interests in, in what was going on. There's absolutely no denying that. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was pretty obvious what was happening. 
um, at least on the surface. Uh, like you said, it's yeah. probably much more complex than it appears, but at the same time, it was there was a lot going on that you could see that you were like, okay, this is just total bullshit. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, the strangest part to me was I, so there was an event where Chile, Colombia, Brazil, and the United States were going to try and insert humanitarian aid into Venezuela against the wishes of the Venezuelan government. Now, their hopes were that that was going to spark some kind of um, rebellion, right, within the country. Like the government would be, be on national television and it would be horribly embarrassing for them to try and stop this, this humanitarian aid that was going to go in. And I was living on the border in Cucuta, in the city where all this happened. And it was wild. Um, it was a complete and utter failure. But before it all started, I was in the press pen in Cucuta listening to everyone give speeches on the day when they were going to drive the, the trucks. And I remember listening to, um, oh God, I forget his name, it wasn't Bolton. Who was the other guy that was in charge of it? The guy with the history uh, with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua? Pompeo? Y yeah. No, wait, is that right? Sorry, or I'm gonna look this up. I'm it wasn't. Up was it William? It wasn't William Barr, was it? No, give me a second. Okay, because I know Barr was the attorney general, but he he had um, in his history, he did he he was the one who was supposed to prosecute um, the people involved in the money laundering scam around the Iran Iran Contra deal, and he okay. actually gave them all pardons. Or just kind of let it all go. He just kind of turned. Maybe his head. you can edit this out. I'm sorry. This is a really important part of the story, and I want to. Oh no, 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 no. That's okay. Excuse the pause here. Yeah, that's I all right. I'm, having... I'm moving my truck right now because they decided to finish loading me, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this is a lot of fun. I've never <laughs> done a podcast carrying my computer around while working. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's intense that you have to balance that all the time. <sighs> Why can I not remember this guy's name? This is killing me. All right. Ah, it's all right. I'll just get back to the story. It's fine. I'm going to waste too much of your time. Oh, that's um, all right. Go ahead. But anyway, I was watching one of the envoys from the U.S. Um, his name is escaping me at the moment. And I just remember listening to his speech and they were about to push all of these, drive a bunch of semi-trucks filled with um, food into the States. And it was just so apparent. I was like, man, if this guy, if this guy, if they would let him go to war, he would, he would do it in a second. Like it was just so clear from the way that he was speaking, that he was talking. And it seemed like at, at that time in January of 2019, there's a lot of saber rattling going on. And it seemed possible that the U.S. might consider some sort of military intervention. And I just remember being like, this is, this is crazy to see this in person, you know, this guy here talking. And they tried to drive the trucks into to Venezuela. And I was covering the story with um, two reporters from Caracas, two Venezuelan reporters. And it was just bedlam, chaos. I've covered a lot of riots here in South America, but I've seen very few that violent. It was National Guardsmen from Venezuela battling uh, sort of opposition activists in, on these two bridges that crossed this river into Venezuela. And it was a battle that lasted into the evening. And by nightfall, um, Venezuelan colectivos, their sort of like militia groups within Venezuela were firing live ammunition back at um, activists who were tossing Molotov cocktails into Venezuelan lines. And I was there, I'd been a journalist for about six months. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was surrounded by all of these guys in like bulletproof vests with uh, army helmets, you know, Kevlar everywhere. Mm -hmm. And just like me in a t-shirt with a, with a Nikon camera. Like, <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea what this <laughs> is. But, uh, yeah, that's yeah, that gotta be, that's gotta be wild. You're in a war zone <laughs> as ill prepared as it gets. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but that was a huge embarrassment. That was a huge embarrassment for, uh, the president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, who said that morning that we were, they were going to finally, what he his exact words were finally going to topple the Berlin Wall, is what he said. And it was televised. And it was a huge failure on the part of U.S. foreign policy. And it was just grossly embarrassing. And then... Was this the riots um, where where the the clip had gone viral from the people on top of the bridge shooting down into the crowd on uh, down below them? That was in April. So when the aid attempt failed in February, 
Um, there was a point in April where Guaido and another opposition leader named Lopez, Leonardo Lopez, yeah. uh, basically attempted a sort of mass defection uh, from the military that didn't get very far. It was aborted <laughs> almost, that, almost as soon as it began. That was like, that was a queef, man. That was just so bad. <laughs> I yeah, remember and, that. And, and that was kind of the point where a lot of people that were huge advocates of Guaido were like, well, he had a shot and he didn't, he didn't pull it off. I mean, during that time, in in beginning of April, uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, had about a fifteen percent approval rating, and Guaido was getting about sixty percent um, support from Venezuelan people. Mm-hmm. But when when that went south, and it was it was just pretty clear that whatever intense that that U.S. backed opposition was going to have had failed. Now you've got a situation where Maduro's approval rating is still about 15%. Uh, Guaido's is about 10. Basically, people have no faith in anyone who's who's part of either the opposition or the government there. Right. Outside of their strict allies, right? Well, you know, the, the craziest part about this whole thing was the last State of the Union. And I know it's hard to remember because 2020 has been such a nightmarish year for everybody. And I know it's hit mm-hmm. Colombia really hard. So I want to give you a chance to talk about that before we stop. But... At the State of the Union address in, in January of 2020, Guaido was there and Trump announced him as the president of Venezuela. And it's yeah. like, nobody believes this, man. Nobody believes this. I don't know what the hell you're trying to do. Nobody believes it. Yeah, at that point, it was, it was clearly failed. Uh, yeah. The only support that he really still retains are uh, loyalists and from the international community. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but yeah, let's uh let's hit on how COVID and um, the lockdowns and this the the way people have taken um, stances on the coronavirus, how this has affected Colombia. Because um, Drill told me that that you had done some work on this. I haven't looked at any of your work on this particular subject, but he said that uh, Colombia has been hit extremely hard. Yeah. Okay. So. You have to understand before we kind of get into this, that when this started, Latin American countries such as Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, they they were facing the situation of of no good options because the health systems here are are incredibly, mm, how can we say this? They're just not sufficient for dealing with anything along the lines of that coronavirus crisis. So it's, you also have governments that are not particularly wealthy. They're not going to be able to support the populations economically the way that, say, I don't know, New Zealand or Canada has been able to do, right? Right. So kind of knowing that, what they chose to do was impose some of the more draconian lockdown measures in the world, especially during the first three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the first three months in Bogota, we could leave the house uh, two or three times a week, depending on the week, for an hour. And you could use that to shop for groceries or do exercise or whatever you wanted. And they were giving out fines. So what happened was a massive, massive economic crash. And because there's no economic support in a lot of these developing nations, started to develop massive like um, nutritional problems among some of the poorer people here who couldn't endure this crisis. Right. It's like the wealthy classes could sort of lock themselves up in their castles, right? And they were fine. Uh, but the working class here was decimated. There was a period towards the end of, of those three months where all of the communities in the suburbs, which are like the poorer neighborhoods here in Bogota, um, the slums, if you will, were hanging red cloths in their windows as symbols of we need food. Like it was a way to try and attack, attract attention from some of the aid groups or charity groups that were operating, sort of non-state entities that were trying to provide some relief. Yeah. So it was it was an economic disaster. And since then they've been kind of half reopened. I can leave the house for as long as I want now. Um, they just reimposed the measures that I can only shop on on even number days because of the, the number that my state ID has. So, I mean, we were still dealing with some some, we're still dealing with measures that are more stringent than ever happened in the U.S. And right. that's extremely lax compared to the first three months. Um, they, they completely closed all land borders with all countries for three months. I was on the Venezuelan border working on a story when they announced they were going to close the borders. And there was like, a, they announced it at 11 p.m. that as of 6 a.m., 
all land borders were going to be closed. So that created a stampede because like any border, uh, there's a lot of um, interdependency through, through commerce, economic activity, schooling. People have neighbors on both sides in these border communities. So in the morning, I went out to go cover it. And it was just a stampede of people trying to get back to whichever side, you know, both to Venezuela and to Colombia. And it was this apocalyptic scene. Like we were in this, 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 this year of global plague. And the same day, the city on the Venezuelan side is called San Cristobal. They decided to burn all their, their garbage in the street. It's like how they deal with garbage. They do it about once a month, but it just so happened to fall on the same day that this border closure was happening. So you saw, 30, 40,000 people all wearing, you know, improvised uh, surgical masks, sometimes made out of cloth or t-shirts or whatever, just black, greasy smoke in the sky. I felt like I was in like a zombie movie or something. But that was just sort of a prelude to what happens. Um, Now the IMF is saying that they're expecting a 12% contraction in all of South America. That's enormous. 2021 is going to be a very difficult year for all of these developing countries. And it's worse for countries who have been uh, dependent upon petroleum to drive their economies. That includes Colombia and Peru, excuse Mm -hmm. me, uh, Colombia and Ecuador, because uh, demand has fallen, right? So prices are cheaper. So they're facing this really complex economic crisis. So, but when people ask me, how did the Colombian government deal with it? Did you say they deal with it well? I think they had been dealt an incredibly shitty hand and they chose to go the route of really draconian lockdown um, lockdown measures Mm -hmm. it's impossible to say what could have or would have happened but there's no doubt in my mind that measures that extreme do harm people there's there's it's just inarguable yeah yeah well i know there was uh there was a story about um an african country uh, i think it was malawi in which um the government came out and said we're going to shut y'all. We're going to shut it down. We're going to lock everybody down. And the people just like, no, you're not because I earn enough money every day to eat that day. It's yeah, like, of course you can't absolutely. shut me down. <laughs> you no, know? Absolutely. I mean, we, there were protests here in Columbia uh, for the exact same reasons. Well, yeah. and I was going to ask you, but, but between the, the way that the, the regulation on, on the marijuana farming, um, the spraying of the, the cocoa fields uh, and, you know, the people's crops and w- water supply, and then the, the entire draconian measures of this year. Are you noticing more unrest um, or, or it beginning to boil up under the surface? Yeah, definitely. So in 2019, there was a national strike here. It was the biggest street protest in 60 years. Mm -hmm. And it lasted about a month. And the government imposed martial law. That was really strange. I've never lived in a place where I woke up in the morning and and I looked outside and there was a tank and guys with machine guns imposing curfew, right? But that's what happened during the midst of these protests. They largely fizzled out towards the end of the year because Christmas is such a huge deal in Colombia. And they had the goal of continuing into 2020. But... Lockdown ended all of that. Um, in September, shortly after the most um, the the country opened back up again, we had the most violent protests in 60 years. Police fired live ammunition into crowds. Uh, over 400 people were wounded. Um, arguments about how many were killed, but it's between uh, 15 and, and 20 mm-hmm. killed by police with live ammunition for protesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of that's kind of on pause sort of in the urban centers, but we see more violence in the rural regions as well, because not only was the government taking advantage of this, 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 these COVID measures to sort of push through, I mean, including this, these anti-drug measures we talked about in the beginning, pushed through a lot of legislation that, that let them respond in a more military way to this, this post-conflict that we're all in. Um, they, there's, there's no doubt they took advantage of that distraction. The global, the, the, I don't know, you remember the news in, in March and April, you opened up your internet and everything was coronavirus. Yeah. So there, there was a lot of um, legislation that was pushed through under that cover that people weren't really paying attention to. And I think that 2021, we're going to see two things. We're going to see massive economic contraction that's going to lead to social instability. 
And furthermore, we're going to see the impact of some of these really militaristic strategies that the Colombian government has been employing. We're going to see the fallout from that. We already see rising violence. Uh, there's a record number of massacres, a record number of assassinations this year since the peace was signed in 2017. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of good for my job because I'll have plenty of work, but it doesn't make me very happy. I'm really worried about what 2021 is going to look like in Latin America in general. Well, it, it makes you wonder, or at least me, one of the things I, it got me thinking about, do these, you know, kind of uh, Marxist narco groups that have kind of fallen fallen by the wayside a little bit latch on to the instability of the citizenry and their, you know, their unrest and uh, find, oh, find more have. strength and more numbers. Uh, they absolutely have. Yeah, recruitment has gone up, including child recruitments, and not just among the Marxist groups, because as I said, a lot of these groups um, are, are <coughs> part of guerrilla forces. Right. But across right. across the political spectrum, all of these groups have used the opportunity to consolidate control of the territories that they possess uh, to up recruitment. Now, this is something interesting I found uh, a couple couple weeks ago. I went to a conflict region called Bajo Gauca. And this has always been a conflict region for both illegal mining of gold and coca. But what, what, what happened is during the COVID crisis, because of all the lockdown measures, these armed groups, uh, specifically one called the Clan de Golfo, which is related to one of the, the self-defense sort of Paraco groups, yeah. saw a massive drop in extortion revenue. So they found themselves as a criminal enterprise uh, in, in threat of going bankrupt, right? So they, they were facing this, this existential problem. They, extortion couldn't support them. And to sell Coke, they had to get it out of the country, get it to, to North America, and then wait for the money to come back. Right. That was made more difficult by all the borders being closed. It was harder to smuggle cocaine out of Colombia during that time. Mm -hmm. So they saw an, another drop of revenue on that front. So what ended up happening is they had to go to war with the other armed groups in the region to try and gain a monopoly over all the, the illegal gold mining. So what you saw was the black market reacting in this, this really radical manner to, to impositions put down on, on the legal market, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a really fascinating example of kind of criminal economics at work. Hmm. That, is, that is interesting. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I guess if you can't move, though, <laughs> there's nowhere to go. Yeah, um, right. I know a lot of people use, and you know, I'm more of an a uh, in my line of thinking. I have more of an uh, agorist kind of line of thought. So you know, the black and gray markets. You know, in, in yeah, the, I I, I use those terms. I use those terms as a way to 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 communicate. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah to, but yeah, but yeah, you're right. It would uh, the the legal, legal shutdowns you know, suddenly just put a hamper on everything. Do you think that with the up in recruiting, and this is kind of where I was going a while ago, do you think you'll, you're going to see uh, a new resurgence of the Civil War and the conflict ramp back up to the levels that it was? I don't think we'll reach the points of the early 2000s when Colombia had the largest internally displaced population in the world behind Syria. Yeah. I, do, I do think, though, that violence will continue to climb each year to levels that are record in, in sort of the post-conflict period since 2017 yeah, until, until the government decides that these policies aren't working. And, yeah, and the, US, just, the U.S. is a big part of that. Yeah, it just worries me that with people seeing the, the lack of losing confidence in governments and not just in Colombia, all over the world, yeah. just constant losing of confidence that you're going to see more conflict and i mean i think that goes for the u.s as well even though i think, I I don't, think that's true i don't think it's going to be on the level that you would see in like you said syria or colombia mm -hmm. but right. um yeah i i was just wondering if there was any if you thought there was any threat of it reaching you know the pinnacles like you said of the early 2000s whenever yeah, i don't i don't I, I don't think it will get to that point again um it, 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 in, in the areas of Colombia that do generate um, capital, they're very well cared for. Like Bogota is safer than New York City. Uh, Medellin is like filled with, with foreign companies and foreign tourists. Uh, Cartagena and the beach is filled with rich, rich tourists from all over Latin and Central America. 
So those places are extremely stable and yeah. they're, they're, they're cared for by the government because they generate money for the government. The, oh. the, the problem um, in Colombia has been that the government has just completely ignored these conflict areas. So that kind of, we could get into a whole conversation about that as well, but maybe we don't have time in this podcast. Um, but as long as the, the, the government chooses purely military solutions to solve these problems, there'll be no long-term, long-term positive effect. Yeah. There has to be an integrated response on all levels, political, social, economic, and military. Yeah. But I mean, speaking of states, like I, you know, whatever, I, I kind of hope all states fall, but we do, we have to deal with the reality we live in. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying because like, I'm like you, I, I want to see all states fall, but at the same time, I don't want to see a bunch of innocent people, you know, suffer in the process. Yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. Absolutely. I have um, an article on, on all the places I visited in Columbia where there is no state. And sometimes I say that because there's, there's no law, there's no presence of the state. There's no taxes, there's no yeah. police. Yeah. Um, and some of those communities uh, sort of work. Some of them are just dominated by like the worst people you can imagine. So it yeah. really depends on, 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 on a lot, a lot of things beyond just uh, I'd like to see all state fall. All state yeah. Fall. Yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah. there's a lot involved. I mean, if you look at, I don't know anything about the uh, stateless areas of Colombia, but the one that, always pops into my mind at least uh here more recently is uh Chiron and Michoacan uh Mexico where oh yeah definitely yeah they kicked out all the politicians and all the cartel members and they seem to be doing just fine you know yeah. A, you know <laughs> yeah there's a there's um it's not quite autonomous but there's a semi-autonomous indigenous region here in the northern part of the border with Venezuela called Guajira and it's it's sort of self-administered by this, these, these collections of tribes, the Wajú, and their territory extends into Venezuela. They're not technically independent, like what you described in Mexico, mm -hmm. but they are largely self-governing just sort of de facto because there's such little Colombian presence. More decentralized than anything. Right, and that's, I mean, these, these sort of non-governmental entities are dealing with a situation where they have zero resources. It's one of the poorest areas of the country. Yeah. But it works. They managed to, I mean, obviously there's problems, but it, it functions, right? As opposed to a conflict area like Arauca, which is controlled by guerrilla groups where they basically are, are forced, they have forced labor. They, they impose like huge taxes on these communities. They'll come and say like, like 30% of your crop is ours because we need to fund the revolution. Mm -hmm. So that's a stateless area that's not working, right? Right. So it just it, it depends on how it's done. I just wanted to clarify that, I guess, for your listeners. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. I think it's, uh, you know, and I can actually kind of see the, uh, you know, like you said, the, the reason that they kind of leave them to their own, these indigenous peoples, because there's not so much resources. So they're like, oh, I'm not going to be we're not going to be able to extract much out of these people. You know, exactly. let's just kind of leave them alone. Exactly. So, and that um, I have a podcast coming out. It'll be out next week um about you know about slab city in in california you know and it, it's it's this kind of autonomous place in in california it's been there for decades and you know some people consider it a homeless encampment or whatever but these mm -hmm. people are basically homesteaded and created their own you know way of life and they're living yeah yeah absolutely it gets a little wild and you know, it's not always the safest place in the world, but right, right. They're they're living free, so I mean, I'm you know, security yeah. or liberty. Which one do you want? You know, I'll have, to, I'll have to check out that podcast. That sounds super interesting. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll send it to you for sure. What, you got any uh, you got any last thoughts on Colombia? Um, you know, I spent so much time criticizing Colombia. Maybe I should say a few things positive about it. I love this country. The people are are. They come from generations of having to deal with this conflict and they're just so resilient and friendly. And uh, I spend so much time criticizing the government, but I deeply love the culture and the people and I'm really happy to be here. And I, I hope I don't paint it as some sort of uh, post-apocalyptic nightmare because the cities are beautiful and super safe. Uh, most of what I've been referring to occurs in uh, rural conflict zones that tourists don't go to. Yeah, well, I mean, you're kind of like, uh, you know, you're kind of like, another Glenn Greenwald you're you're living in South America and you're doing a lot of the, the work a lot of other people don't want to do 
and so you're seeing some bad things you know yeah I, I really i really like field work but i think it's important people hear these stories yeah well i i definitely want to do more more of these interviews with you and i want to uh i'm gonna i'm gonna definitely try to keep up with your writing and yeah, remind yeah. everybody remind everybody where they can find you and how they can keep up with um all the stories that you're writing Sure. The easiest place to find me is my website. That's Muros Invisibles. That's Spanish for uh, invisible walls. It's MurosInvisibles.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Joshua Collins. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great to have um, a chat about some things I hadn't thought about in a while. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I need to brush up on my foreign policy. I haven't looked at South American policy and things like that in a long time. So yeah, definitely. It, it was about time for me to have that conversation. Oh, it's great. I love it. I want more people to know about it. Now, well, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to learn more about it. I'm going to have you on so we can have a, we can get even more in detail. Cool. Thanks, man. Well, I'm going to get going, but have a beautiful evening. And I really enjoyed being on. Thanks. All right, brother. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Okay. That was my interview with Joshua Collins plan on having him on many more times to keep up with all the information and updates going on in that region so stay tuned i'm tommy salmons late